Amen. What a wonderful morning of worship that we have already had and what a sweet prayer to sing before we come to God's Word. If you have a Bible with you today, please open to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And I must say, this is the nicest time machine that I have ever preached in front of. Um, this thing is, is, a, is a beauty and I can't wait to see it work this week at VBS Please be praying. Uh, This is such a wonderful time for us to lovingly reach out and to minister to all the kids and the families who will be a part of that this week. So please be in prayer throughout the week that God would open many hearts and minds and that as we just sang, this would be another triumph, another victory of God's grace that we would have the joy to tell and to participate in. John chapter 15 is where we will be this morning and we'll transition, Lord willing, into chapter 16. Here, in in the context of where we find ourselves, Jesus is spending time encouraging His men, teaching His men, instructing His men before He would go to the cross. In verses 1 to 11 of chapter 15, Jesus underscores the absolute necessity of abiding in Him, of remaining in Him, of finding life, strength, and purpose in Him, for apart from Him, the disciples would be unable to experience the love of God and the joy of God. Apart from Him, they would be absolutely powerless to bear fruit, to carry on the work and the mission that Jesus would entrust to them. But in Christ, Jesus says, you will bear much fruit. In Christ, they could appeal to the Father. And the Father would give to them and entrust to them anything and everything that they need to accomplish His will and His work. So verses 1 to 11, Jesus underscores the absolute necessity of abiding in Him. Then in verses 12 to 17, as we saw last week, Jesus would teach his men about what it means to love one another, to to rightly and to appropriately love one another in a love that reflects and that models and that shows and that grows out of the very love of Christ, that models and shows and reflects the love that Jesus has shown to them. This is love that is perfect. This is love that is gracious, that is freely given. This is love that is sacrificial. Jesus wants this to become their motivation, their instruction to love, and this ought to become our motivation and our instruction to love as we consider how Christ has loved us, how He has freely and sacrificially given His life that we may be transformed to then turn around and to love those around us. And Jesus' urgent command for His disciples to love one another is not of secondary importance. It is not a trivial matter because Jesus knows full well what His disciples, what His followers will be up against when He leaves and ultimately ascends back into heaven. Jesus knows that His disciples will need one another. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. Jesus understood this. Jesus taught this to them and to us. Jesus wants them and us to have our eyes wide open, that we would understand the reality of hostility that we will face in a fallen world. Now, to be sure, and and I, I can't underscore this enough this morning, to be very sure, Jesus does not want, He does not want His children to be worried, to be anxious, to be panicked as they think about hardship and persecution. But but neither does Jesus want them to be arrogant or, or to be smug. Jesus wants them and us to be alert, to be aware, to be watchful, to be spirit dependent as we live for His honor and glory, as we strive to represent Him, as we strive to love one another, as we proclaim the victories of Christ over sin, Satan, hell and death. And so Jesus speaks with great urgency, with great clarity, because He knows what is coming. He 
always knows what is coming. Jesus knows that he is just about to be unjustly arrested and then brutally killed and executed. Jesus knows that his disciples will be terrified. They will scatter like frightened sheep. Jesus knows that fierce persecution awaits them after he ascends back into heaven. Jesus knows that Stephen will be stoned in Acts 7. Jesus knows many of his followers will be beaten and arrested in the, in the persecution that follows that stoning. Jesus knows that James, the brother of John, will be executed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. Jesus knows that Peter will ultimately one day be, be, be crucified himself and will give his life for the gospel. Jesus knows that John will one day be exiled to the island of, of Patmos. Jesus knows that Paul will be arrested many times, beaten many times, and will ultimately be beheaded. Jesus knows about every act, about every instance of persecution and opposition that his children are about to experience. And so Jesus wants his men, and he wants us prepared for life in a fallen world prepared for life in a fallen world that is hostile to the truth. Jesus does not hear, in the verses we're about to read, Jesus does not sugarcoat anything. Jesus does not mislead or deceive his men, but he shoots straight with them. He pulls no punches. He gives them the truth, and it's a truth that we need to hear as well. So look with me at John chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 18. Jesus says to his men, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we this morning take great comfort from what Jesus says here. May we live lives that demonstrate and that show your love. May we demonstrate lives that reflect a love for Christ, a love for one another, and that reflect dependence upon you and your spirit. Father, help us to learn to be, to grow to be bold, kind, loving, and gracious whenever and however we face any kind of opposition. And we pray this so that Christ may be glorified, that his gospel be advanced. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. In the verses before us, we see both the promise of distinct persecution and the promise of divine power. Look with me again at verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world 
hates you. So how can we rightly live and thrive and represent Christ in a fallen world, in a fallen system? Well, firstly, please note this on your outline. A, expect to be hated by the world. Expect to be hated by the world. Now I realize that even as I say that, some of you no doubt are thinking, Man, I picked the wrong day to come to church. I, I picked the day to come to church when he's talking about persecution and he's talking about how the world is going to hate us. I should have stayed home and watched the FIFA World Cup. And I get that. I, I get that. The FIFA World Cup, it is very exciting. It, it, it's exciting to watch one point be scored every 60 minutes. It is, it is, it is very satisfying to watch a 90 minute game end in a tie and then, and then send everybody home. I, I, I get it. That is very exciting. Now, I'm just kidding. I love the World Cup as much as the next guy. And I have to say that. Otherwise, my father-in-law will beat me up. Um, but I do realize that, that here at first, Jesus' words, they sound like terrible news. It, it sounds like discouraging news. This sounds like awful information that Jesus gives to his men. But listen, Jesus says what he says out of great love and concern for his disciples. He wants them and us to be prepared for life in this world. And so out of these couple verses, there are three questions that we want to quickly ask and answer. Question number one, what does Jesus mean by world? Who or what is this world that hates him and, and will presumably hate us? Question number two, uh, why does the world hate Jesus? Why would anybody hate Jesus? Wasn't he always kind and gracious to everybody that, that, that he met? Why does the world hate him? And then question number three, why does Jesus tell his disciples that they are not of the world? What does that mean exactly? So question number one, what does Jesus mean by world? Who or what is this world that, that hates him and us? Well, please note it on your outline. Here Jesus is referring to those opposed to God, to those ruled and influenced by Satan or, or by the devil. Here the world refers to this evil system that rejects Christ and that rejects the truth about him. Jesus often spoke of the influence and of the power that Satan would have over those who were opposed to him. Jesus even warned and, and pleaded with the religious leaders of his own time, saying in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 refers to Satan as, quote-unquote, the God, little g, of, of this world. This, this little g God who blinds hearts and minds from seeing the light of the gospel. Friend, you are either under the rule and the authority of Christ, or you are deceived by the enemy from seeing the truth of Christ. The Apostle John would later write in 1 John 5.19, he says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole unbelieving world lies under the influence of Satan, of the evil one, and is thus opposed to God and, and to his people. But this raises a, a, a second question. Why does the world hate Jesus? What could possibly be offensive or unlikable about Jesus. Doesn't, doesn't everybody like Jesus? Doesn't the entire world celebrate Jesus' birthday at, at, at Christmas? I mean, every year, we, the whole world sings and celebrates the birthday of Jesus. Um, well, please note this on your outline. Baby Jesus lying in a manger is not really the problem. Although some people do get all worked up over, over nativity scenes, and we always hear about this every year, but, but that's fundamentally not the problem. The, the, the nativity scene is really not the issue, okay? Note this on your outline. It's grown up, crucified, risen, Lord, King, God, Savior, Jesus, that the world finds so offensive. Jesus said so clearly, in John chapter 7, verse 7, it says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now that is very instructive. 
The world hates Jesus because Jesus testifies that the, that the world is evil, that the world is not okay, that the world needs to repent and needs to forsake sin and needs to find reconciliation in Him as Savior. In fact, the very fact that, that Jesus is called the Savior is offensive because it implies that we need saving. It implies that we are not okay. It, 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 it implies that we need to be saved from our sin and ultimately from the wrath of God against our sin. And so this helps to explain why the world would hate us as we continue the work of Jesus, as we continue the mission of Jesus to proclaim that there is saving to be found, but it is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His atoning work. So Jesus is offensive to the world because His very life and presence calls attention to our need for forgiveness, for our need for reconciliation with God. Question number three. Why does Jesus tell his disciples that they are not of the world? Why does he say that? It it, it sure seems like we are of the world. We live here. We work here. We shop here. We raise our families here. And unless Jesus returns, we're going to die here. So what does Jesus mean when he says that he chose us out of the world? Well, it is true that we live here, but we are actually in Christ citizens of another kingdom. We are, we are citizens of, of another realm other than just this one. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we live here, but we don't live for here. We don't live for this life, for this world. We don't operate according to this world's values and principles. We think very differently about a great many things. The Apostle Peter would pick up on this theme and would write about this uh, really throughout much of his, his short letter called 1 Peter, let me read you just a few verses. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. I believe this is on your outline. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Yes, we live here and we honor, we respect we appreciate the, the governing authorities that, that rule over us, that God has put in place, but we are fundamentally citizens of heaven. First and foremost, we live for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ and for the advancement of His gospel and of His kingdom. Jesus has called us. He has made us citizens of His kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says it this way, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. God has saved us. God has redeemed us. God has transferred us to His kingdom. So how can we rightly live and thrive in this present life? Firstly, expect to be hated by the world. Understand the reality of the situation that we are in. But secondly, be on your outline. Take comfort. Take comfort from your identification with Christ. Take great comfort from your identification with Christ. We are here, as Jesus explains, we are identified with Him. 
We are His people. We belong to Him. And this should be a great comfort to us. Verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And this, 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 this does make a lot of sense. I mean, do any of us believe that we deserve better treatment than the Lord Jesus Christ. Do, do any of us believe that, that we ought to be honored and, and esteemed and, and recognized more than the, the King of glory who left heaven to, came, to come to earth to save us, to reconcile us? Of course not. And we as ambassadors for Christ and of Christ ought to expect the same kind of treatment that Jesus received. Now, at the end of verse 20, though, I think there is an element of hope and promise in what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And there is a sense in which this is good news because there are some who do hear and keep the word of Christ. In fact, the disciples are living proof of that. They were those who had heard and had received the word of Christ. In the book of Acts alone, we see thousands upon thousands of individuals who would hear and receive and believe the word of Christ and be brought into the family of God. It is our joy to see the gospel spread worldwide. It is our joy to see the gospel spread this week as we as we do VBS, as we teach those who come to attend. It is our joy to see many come to faith in Christ. Now, in verse 21, Jesus identifies somewhat of the source of the problem, really the reason why his disciples will be hated. Jesus says, verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of, here it is, my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Followers of Christ are, are persecuted, are hated on account of, because of, the name of Jesus. Now, this does not mean, don't misunderstand Jesus' words, this does not mean that, that the world is fundamentally opposed to the sound Jesus. All right? that, that the world is not fundamentally opposed to, to, to the letters J-E-S-U-S being put together in, in that combination. No, please note this on your outline. The name of Jesus embodies and represents His identity, His strength, His work, and His glory. To be opposed to the name of Jesus means so much more than just being opposed to the sound of a name. It means to be opposed to Christ Himself. To be opposed to his person, his work, his mission, his identity. Christians will face persecution because we are sold out to Christ. We love him. We promote him. He is our joy. He is our strength. He is our life. We live for his name to be made known, for his glory to be made manifest. We long for him to be worshipped among the nations. In Acts 4.18, as you'll recall, Peter and John were, were sternly warned and were sternly threatened by the religious leaders of their day to stop speaking and teaching, quote-unquote, in the name of Jesus. Stop doing this in the, in the name of Jesus. But of course, they, they could not do this. They, they made that abundantly clear that they must proclaim Christ. They must proclaim His name, meaning they must proclaim His identity, His work, His mission, His saving power, His victory over sin and death. Now, it's very interesting where, where Jesus goes next in this conversation with his disciples as he is preparing them for life in a fallen world. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, at first glance, this may seem a little bit confusing, a little bit perplexing, but what we need to understand here is that Jesus is using a common Jewish idiom, a, a common Jewish teaching tool similar to hyperbole to emphasize one central main point. And the main point is 
fairly obvious. We could summarize it like this. Jesus says, I have come from the Father. I have spoken perfect truth. I have fulfilled my mission. I have shown grace upon grace. I have manifest truth. And yet I am hated by the world. I am rejected. I am despised. And that is, that is gross sin. That is terrible sin for which there is no excuse. What could be worse than staring the Son of God in the face and saying, I don't see anything here. I don't see anything significant here. I don't see anything that is worthy of my attention, that is worthy of my respect, that is worthy of of my worship. I, I, I reject you. I reject your teaching. I reject your, your works. I, I reject all of it. Jesus says this is fundamentally gross sin at its core to look at the very work of God in the person of God and to walk away from it and, and to reject it altogether. What more could God do than to send His Son to teach and to testify to the truth? What more could God do than to send His Son to manifest perfect grace and mercy? What more could God do than to send His Son to perform miracle after miracle, sign after sign? And so Jesus says in the next verse, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. There are a few things that we ought to note about verse 23 and the following verses. Here's the first one. Please note it on your outline. Jesus is the dividing line between loving and hating God. He says abundantly clear, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To love Jesus is to love the Father. To hate Jesus is to hate the Father. To reject Jesus is to walk away from God Himself. Jesus here says that it is impossible to love God and to not love Him. And conversely, to love Him is to love God and to embrace the Father's will. And brothers and sisters, this is an especially important, controversial, and hated point to consider as we evaluate the spiritual climate in which we live. We live in a day and age, as you well know, when it is so fashionable to talk about spirituality, to talk about being spiritual, to claim some kind of connection to God, to talk vaguely about knowing God and having some relationship with Him. And yet here, Jesus says that it is impossible to reject Him, to reject His life, His testimony, His work, and yet still love God. And by the way, this isn't the first time that Jesus would underscore and emphasize this point. Back in John 5, verse 23, Jesus would say, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. To dishonor Christ is to dishonor the Father. To walk away from Jesus is to walk away from God. There is no peace. There is no relationship with God apart from Christ. And so this is why we cannot settle for vague talk when it comes to God. We cannot settle for fuzzy thoughts about Jesus when discussing the Gospel. We need to be clear like Jesus was and is clear here in the Gospel of John. Otherwise, we run the risk of misrepresenting Him. Number two, please note this on your outline as well. We see next in verse 24 that hating Jesus is truly illogical because all His works validate and prove His claims. Jesus said in verse 24, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. 
Jesus' entire life, His works, His miracles, His teaching, His fulfilling of Old Testament prophecy, it all testified to the truthfulness of His claims so that those who reject Him are truly without excuse after looking at Jesus' life and ministry, His works and His signs. He should have been worshipped. They should have bowed before Him, but instead, as Christ points out, they hated Him and they, and they rejected Him. Now, John, the writer of, of, of this Gospel, has been preparing us for this rejection all throughout his book. All the way back in chapter 3, John had explained to us this truth in John 3.19, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People loved the darkness. They loved their sin, says John. And therefore they hated the light and they did not want to come to the light. People do not ultimately walk away from Jesus because they find the evidence insufficient. Because they find His testimony, His works lacking. People ultimately walk away from Christ and choose to stay in the shadows and in the darkness because there is some sin that they would rather cling to then submit to Christ and come to Him. They have sadly, just as we did before we came to Christ, they had believed, we had believed, and bought into some lie, some deception of sin that says it's better to stay in the shadows. It is better, life is more enjoyable to cling to this sin, whatever it may be, to have this rather than come to Christ and to bow before His Lordship, to confess my need and to receive adoption into His family, it is better to stay away from Christ and to stay in the shadows. And so this is why, brothers and sisters, we plead with people. We plead with people to come to Christ. We plead with people to see, to open their eyes, to behold the greatness and the glory of Christ. We beg those who have bought this light to venture into the light where Christ is, that they may know and see and experience true love and true freedom and the gift of eternal life and adoption into God's family. We plead with people to hear the kind and gracious words of Jesus in Matthew 11 where He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. As we live in this fallen world facing, yes, the persecution and the difficulty that will come. Listen, brothers and sisters, we never stop holding out this free offer of grace. We never stop pleading with people, begging with people to come to the light that they may see and behold and know Christ. Next. Number three on your outline, in spite of the hatred, in spite of the opposition, we must remember God's purposes will be fulfilled. God's purposes will be fulfilled. God will be victorious. God's word will always be fulfilled. His sovereignty can never be slowed. His word must be accomplished. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Please hear that word, must. This must be fulfilled. This Old Testament 
prophecy from Psalm 35. It must be fulfilled. Here Jesus refers to this as their law. Jesus says their law must be fulfilled. This law that God had inspired and had given to them would be fulfilled. Obviously, the religious leaders knew the law. They claimed to believe the law and to follow the law. And yet they were in the very process of rejecting their Messiah of refusing to come to Him and to walk in His light. They were guilty before the very law that they claimed to uphold. And so here in talking with His men, Jesus quotes from Psalm 35 where David describes how he was betrayed, how he was hated without a cause. Most likely... Here, David wrote Psalm 35 in response to the betrayal of his son, Absalom. As Absalom would try to steal and wrestle and take away the, 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 the kingdom, the nation from, from David. And so here, by quoting this, Jesus is very obviously making a comparison between himself and King David. David, he was the legitimate anointed king of Israel. He was a good king. As you well know, he was not a a perfect king, but it was wrong. It was sinful that he was betrayed in this way. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, is the true, the perfect, the ultimate, the eternal king, king of Israel, king of the world, king of the universe. He in every way is perfect. He is full of grace and truth, and yet he was hated And rejected for no reason except for that we loved our sin. We would rather stay in the darkness. We would rather hide in the shadows than than, than come to Christ. Jesus was truly and indeed hated without a cause. While Jesus' enemies were choosing to hate Him, it's important to note Jesus was choosing to love them. Jesus was choosing to love His enemies. And brothers and sisters, may we do the same. May we, again, follow the example that Christ has set for us. Yes, we will be hated. Yes, we will experience persecution in this life. But how did Christ respond to such persecution? He responded with love and with mercy and with grace. And may we do the same. May we take very seriously the words that Jesus said in Matthew 5 where where He said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So let us persist in love, knowing that God is victorious. His word will be fulfilled. Christ has won the victory. So how can we rightly live and thrive in this fallen world? Number one, expect to be hated by the world. Number two, take comfort from your identification with Christ. And now see on your outline, depend upon the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The helper that Christ sends to us. Yes, there will be opposition. There will be persecution. But Christ does not leave us to our own devices. Christ does not leave us to our own resources, to our own power, to our own abilities. He says here He will send to us the Holy Spirit, the Helper to live in us, to work in us and through us. And this is unbelievably good news. Look again at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with Me from the beginning. Again, this is unbelievable good news for at least several reasons. Number one, noted on your outline, because the Spirit testifies... We can testify with confidence. Because the Spirit testifies, we can testify with confidence. It is unmistakable. Jesus links the witnessing work of the disciples to the witnessing work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is, is here said to be 
testifying about who Christ is, about what He would accomplish. And therefore, we can testify to who Christ is and to what He has accomplished. And please notice the order that Jesus puts things in. Who does Jesus talk about first? The work of the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit first. I think Jesus does this to give priority and precedence to it. It is foundational to our work. It would be foundational to the disciples' work. Jesus doesn't start with the disciples. He starts with the testimony and the work of the Holy Spirit. As the disciples and as we proclaim the truth about Jesus, we can be confident that the Spirit is doing His work to testify to Christ, to open hearts and minds to Him. We are not left to ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God who inspired that Word to teach, to explain the truth concerning Jesus. One pastor living hundreds of years ago remarked, this single witness powerfully drives away, scatters, and overturns all that the world rears up to obscure or crush the truth of God. He's right. However much the darkness may oppose the truth, when the Spirit testifies, when the Spirit opens ears and eyes and hearts, the truth is made known. The truth is seen. And Christ and His Spirit are victorious. And people are redeemed as they come to faith in Christ. And here, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we can testify because the Spirit is doing His work to testify. Number two, please note this on your outline. The Spirit of Truth, the Helper, is sent by Jesus and proceeds, comes forth from the Father. The Spirit comes forth, proceeds from the Father. Again, you'll notice Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Helper or as the Paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us to work in us and through us to testify to the truth. And Jesus also makes it abundantly clear that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. That the Spirit comes from the Father. This is important because it shows once again the Spirit's Harmony, the Spirit's unity with both the Son and the Father. The Spirit is sent by the Son and comes, proceeds from the Father. They are unified. They are in unity, in agreement, working as one to accomplish their plan and their mission. This also obviously elevates the authority and the power of the Spirit. If this Spirit does indeed come directly from the Father, then this Spirit is authoritative. This Spirit is powerful. This Spirit is trustworthy. Also, this helps us understand the deity of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. This Spirit proceeds from the Father and is, in fact, the very Spirit of of God. And if that's true, and it is indeed true, He cannot be other than divine. And this is why the Apostle Paul so often referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, Paul makes this unbelievably, this, this incredible statement about the Spirit, where he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Only one who is divine could search everything, even the depths of God. And it is this Spirit, this Helper that Jesus would send to live in us that we may be empowered and strengthened to testify to what Christ has done for us and in us. Because the Spirit testifies, we can testify. The Spirit of truth, the Helper, is sent by Jesus and proceeds, comes forth from the Father. Then number three on your outline, Jesus emphasizes that a primary role of the Spirit is to bear witness about Him. A primary role of the Spirit is to bear witness about Him. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. 
and thus he must be believed. He teaches, he proclaims the truth concerning Christ. In fact, no one, please hear me, no one can rightly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. In, in their mind. Paul would say so clearly in 1 Corinthians 12, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Anyone, everyone who truly and rightly confesses Jesus Christ as Lord does so because of the Spirit's work in their heart and mind. Listen, where Christ is glorified, the Spirit is at work. Where the truth is embraced, the Spirit is bearing witness. Where people sense their guilt of sin and their need for Christ, the Spirit is powerfully working to draw men and women to God. The Spirit is like a powerful spotlight of truth that shines the focus upon the reality of Christ and of what He has accomplished for sinful people like us. Yes, the Spirit reveals our guilt, convicts us of sin, but more importantly, He points us to Christ, who is Lord and Savior and God. Next, number four on your outline, Jesus reveals that the apostles would have a unique ministry as eyewitnesses to his glory. Jesus tells them in verse 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These now 11 disciples, Judas having departed, had seen and heard much. God would use them in wonderful ways to explain his life his work, his ministry. Peter would write in Second Peter 1.16 saying, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter says, we were an eyewitness to this. We saw with our own eyes. We beheld the work and the glory and the majesty of Jesus. So as we look to Christ, as we look to His Word, we trust what we find recorded in the pages of Scripture because we know it was inspired of the Holy Spirit and because it bears the authenticity of eyewitness testimony. From Jesus' words here in John, the apostles should have expected to have a significant teaching role, a significant teaching ministry, so that others like us may come to see and know the truth concerning Christ. How can we rightly live and thrive and represent Christ in this fallen world? Firstly, expect to be hated by the world. B, take comfort from your identification with Christ. C, depend upon the power and presence of the Spirit, of the Helper. And lastly, D on your outline, be anchored. Be anchored in the hope of God's promises. Be anchored in the hope of God's promises. Look again at uh, chapter 16 as we now wade just a couple of verses into chapter 16. We see that Jesus would have his men be confident in him, in his word and, and in his promises. Look again at chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now here in these four verses, Jesus summarizes much of what he had just said. Jesus summarizes the fact that persecution will come. Jesus clarifies that, that you will be put out of the synagogue. You will be ostracized from your people. Some of you will even be killed. And the people who kill you will wrongly think that they are somehow offering service to God. We remember that before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was the persecutor of the church Saul and he thought he was doing the work of God he thought that he was being faithful to the God of the Old Testament in persecuting followers of Christ and yet God 
intervened. God called Paul to himself that he may come to see and to know the truth. Here, Jesus reiterates again that there will be fierce opposition. And this opposition will come from those who do not know him and who do not know the Father. But in the midst of all this, please do not miss the main point. The main point that Jesus is driving home in these verses. Look again at verse 1. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jump down to verse 4. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus says these things to his men. Please hear me not to discourage them. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Jesus says these things so that they will be confident in him. They will be confident in his word and in his promises. You say, why? Here's the answer. Because, friend, Jesus is never wrong. Jesus is never wrong. When he predicts the future, when he declares what is going to happen, he is always right. Jesus is batting a thousand. Jesus is ten for ten. Jesus is always accurate. Jesus is always true. He always gets it right. Jesus' disciples will not and should not fall away Because what Jesus says is always true. Why would you ever want to abandon and walk away from someone who always accurately and perfectly predicted the future? This is, this is the point. Jesus says, be very confident in me and in my words that you will remember that just what I have told you will come to pass. That is good reason to run to Jesus, not away from Jesus. That is good reason to cling to Jesus, not draw from him. Jesus explains all these things to his disciples in advance so that when they happen, they will know that he was right. Everything is proceeding. Everything is progressing just like Jesus knew it would. So there is great hope even in the midst of great persecution. And that hope is centered and focused on the truthfulness of Christ. He never lies he knows all about the, uh, the difficulty we face, uh, the difficulty we have faced, the difficulty we will face. Perhaps even this week, nothing is out of control. Things are happening just as Jesus said they would. Don't fear. Continue to trust. Continue to believe. Continue to rest in Christ. And continue to testify. Continue to bear witness to who Christ is, to what he has accomplished, because the spirit of truth is alive and well. The spirit of truth is working in and through his people. Expect to be hated by the world. Take comfort from your identification with Christ. Depend upon the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and be anchored in the hope of God's promises. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are thankful to know that your promises never fail. You are faithful to your people and we rejoice to be your people. We rejoice to have your word, to have your spirit working in us and through us. Thank you for the unbelievable mercy and grace that you have given to us. Father, we pray that you would continue to do great things. We pray that you would do great things this week, during the week of VBS, that your spirit would open many hearts and minds to be responsive to the gospel. Do this for the honor and glory of your name and for our joy. And we pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. If you would please stand and we will close singing a beautiful prayer, asking for God's will to be accomplished.